Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, April 16th, 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good Phantom Sunday to you, Peter. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of KestAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Michael, can we find multiple reviews of the many Phantom of the Opera cast recordings on cast album reviews? Yes. <laughs> yes. Although there aren't actually that many as compared to some other shows, are there? No. I mean, no, it's it, never an original Broadway cast album. Yes, I was going <laughs> yeah. to mention that, yeah. How ironic that, that the longest-running show, yeah. Uh, I remember vividly when I saw Phantom... Uh, a few days after it opened in uh, London, that uh, when you bought the album, it was all on one track. Yes. The CD was all on one track. I was just yeah. saying that the vinyl itself, I don't recall if the vinyl itself was one I don't one know track. about that. No, I was uh, doing CDs then. But anyway, yeah. um, it was so annoying. And eventually they did remedy that. Um, but it was Andrew Lake Weber, I'm told, who really wanted that to happen so that nobody could skip ahead, that everybody would have to hear the whole thing. Yes, because it was an integral musical work and it had to be heard complete. And oh, God forbid you should actually lift up the, you know, press, yeah, right. the, press the, the, uh, the, the, the track button and go to the next one. Yeah, really. I mean, it was very annoying because um, my favorite song on the show is um, favorite songs are All I Ask of You, Prima Donna and Masquerade. And uh, it was annoying to me not to be able to play those over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I remember but, when the CD came out, I went to buy a new stereo. Uh, I was still living on Staten Island at that point. And I brought and I brought that with me uh, as a test CD because I was thinking of you know like that opening which is so grand and mm-hmm. and then the 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 salesman put it on and and that organ theme was like just mm-hmm. resounding through the <laughs> through the through the shop and everyone was stopped and listened and it was kind of kind of thrilling really you bet 
You yes. bet. I mean, needless to say, whenever a show becomes that popular, there's going to be a backlash against it. But nevertheless, there was a time when uh, many of us were listening to that quite a bit. Uh, Rob Johnson in our chat room is confirming that the vinyl was uh, one track per side. So you, wow. you couldn't find those clear sections to drop the needle in between. Yeah, that mm. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so Phantom of the Opera, the longest running musical or longest running anything on Broadway. Right, right. Um, is wrapping up sh- shop today, uh, April 16th, 2023. It's going to have had 16 previews and 13,973 <laughs> performances from 1988 to 2023. So uh, it, it's, it's something that it, it's the end of an era. It's the British invasion has come to an end. Isn't it? Well, you know, what's really so surprising, though, I really would have thought that just for the sake of numbers that they would run into the 14,000, just a few weeks more would be. So um, I, I would think that, that would seem to be a more impressive number. Um, the other mm-hmm. thing, now, I, the other thing, too, um, about um, the Phantom experience that uh, so many of us had here, there, and everywhere was that they really did a very good job of replicating the original production. I did see the um, national tour in both Chicago and San Francisco. I also saw the Las Vegas version, too, which um, I think was very smart in um, having the chandelier drop at the end, which is what happens in the movie, too. Um, The movie is much maligned. I don't think it's bad. Uh, But... uh, Anyway, um, it's Ron Fassler wrote me a, a message yesterday saying, well, now, you know, this is the first time mm. in 70 years or so that uh, Harold Prince's name won't be in a playbill. Um, because I had done an article about this some years ago that since being a stage manager in Wonderful Town, there hadn't been a day um, that he hadn't had his name in a playbill because so many shows he was producing or directing or revived. And I said to Ron, no, 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 actually, it's going to last a little bit longer because he's con- he's in the playbill as co-conceiver of Parade. So um, at least he's getting a few months reprieve uh, from the governor <laughs> to uh, to uh, indeed um, be in playbills. It's going to be a sad day, though, when that happens. Um, I'm, so um, I'm, I'm rooting for Parade to run for years and years and years. That's my policy. So we'll see what happens. I forget. Did you de- did you determine that there there was never a time, uh, even a brief time previously, when he, he because the, he did have Hal Prince did have that sort of fallow period before Phantom. It was a terribly fallow period. You're quite right about that. But I I do believe that because of like revivals of Zorba, where they said right. you know produced yeah. by Harold Prince, that type of thing. I think he got away with it. I haven't looked at the article in a long time. Ron reminded of me yesterday, but um, but I think it really is a streak um, yeah. that um, wasn't broken or won't be broken until parade closes. And really, so, I, I I I'm sorry, I keep cutting you no, off, no, James. Go 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 ahead. Well, I, I the the main point I want to make about Phantom because I, I think it's well known that I'm not a fan of the show itself, but I don't think it's a coincidence that the two Andrew Lloyd Webber shows that were the most successful were directed by Hal Prince. <laughs> um, uh-huh. I, I do uh-huh. not think it, it is uh-huh. a coincidence. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, 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 it's, it's really fascinating when you look at it that way. Yeah, uh, it is, isn't it? To see that, you know, I think that he really needed a, a strong hand like that. Uh, but, uh, the, but of course, there are other 
there were other uh, things involved there with uh, mainly the fact that I think Tim Rice was a, a ultimately a much better collaborator uh, with him than than the people who have worked with him since. Uh, but still, I, uh, you know, I, I think it's really is a tribute to Hal Prince. And many people are saying that uh, um, the closing of fandom has only uh, emboldened some other people to say that they think that really a theater should be named after Hal Prince. Uh, have you guys uh, heard this you know, rumors, discussions that uh, w- we may not be missing Phantom for all that long? Sure. Yeah, and 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 that's yeah. That just, um, I mean, we. I don't know if we want to get into all that, but it just it, it just makes my blood boil because it seems uh-huh. like that that's what's going on here. It's just an attempt to kind of um, remove Hal Prince from the royalty pool and his estate. Obviously, his estate. I mean, he's no longer with us, um, and this has already happened. I guess in in England, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not, uh, it's, it wouldn't be the first, but uh, it seems to me that Lloyd Webber has almost pretty much come out fl- and flat said that we will see it again soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I, I do wonder what the reception for that is going to be like. Hmm. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So I, I mean, it, it- Quite possibly could be that Phantom will return to Broadway just as soon as the fall. Uh, so we'll have to see we'll what see. happens there. I mean, well, we shall there, see. The, we shall see. It, it, it would be, um, there are a lot of, uh, productions that are looking for Broadway houses and, I, who knows what's going to happen with the Majestic. I, you know, we've talked about that the Majestic is going to, uh, undergo a deep cleaning at least. <laughs> oh, more than that, yeah. Really. <laughs> at makes, least. I mean, really, all those decades uh, where they couldn't make uh, extensive repairs and all that, now's the time. Yeah. So, uh, Rob Johnson brings up, why not wait three seasons to qualify for a revival? And I think that uh, given that uh, Phantom has been topping the grossest charts, yeah. I don't really think they care about the revival Award as much as the money. hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, of ticket sales that they will forego waiting three seasons. Wait a minute, so. I don't think it's three seasons. Oh no, no, I don't know. Isn't it like six months or something like? Was that, that right? Well, I, I, I don't know the uh, be eligible the ruling you're saying, on that. Yeah. You're saying to be eligible for a revival. I never heard three seasons. Uh huh. Yeah. Or 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 maybe I'm just thinking of. Um, Maybe the six months is that they uh, they have to close for six months in order to uh, to like have it new contracts and hire new people and uh, you know make whatever changes they might make in terms of um, uh, you know like making the orchestra smaller and sure. and doing things like maybe I'm confusing it with that I but I never heard. Um, that three season thing that's uh could, could you imagine uh, F- phantom of the opera with now a new ai orchestra <laughs> well, <laughs> not impossible not impossible at all yeah, yeah. um peter you might be uh comforted that your your brother from another mother paul witty said that <laughs> the completest in me says why not wait till fourteen thousand? you know performances <laughs> yeah 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 uh, really <laughs> So, <laughs> so it's uh, it's very interesting. So now we have uh, 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, uh, back of the napkin math says that the new longest running show as of tomorrow is Wicked? No, is Chicago. That- isn't it Chicago? Is it Ch- uh, Chicago? Or, oh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's yeah. Yeah, and then I thing. guess that's it. And then yeah, Chicago. Yeah. 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 And yeah. how many years would they have to run just to even catch? Um, almost a decade, right? I mean, I think eight yeah. years. Yeah, eight years. And another interesting thing is, as of this recording, uh, I don't think we know who is going to be the final Phantom on Broadway. Because I've been reading that Ben Crawford, who had been doing the role, has been out. Yeah, uh, I saw that. Too. Uh, with uh, I'm sure if it's vocal problems or something else, but um, wow. So really? uh, and this fellow Laird McIntosh, uh, mm-hmm. presumably no relation, presumably <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. uh, has who has done it before has been going on. So it may be him. Well, it'd be nice for Ben Crawford because that would be such a nice bookend with Michael Crawford, you know, right. starting, you know, so, <laughs> right. so that would be nice. But, uh, anyway, it's not really that important in the long scope of things, is it? So, so let me see here. Chicago's got 10,329 performances, Lion King 9,944, Wicked 7,485. So, yeah. And so, cats. So Chicago with ten thousand is uh, still three, uh, almost four thousand behind Phantom. So, mm-hmm. so that's almost ten years. Yeah, and you can bet that the Weislers are going to start advertising that as oh, of Monday course. or Tuesday. <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. I remember very vividly uh, being anxiously awaiting the New York Times on May third, nineteen seventy to see what the Fantastics would say. Um, and uh, because they opened on May 3rd, 1960. <laughs> and indeed, you know, they're in the ABC at second decade. <laughs> <laughs> there would be many more than that. But uh, <laughs> but anyway. So, uh, uh, did, Peter, uh, mm-hmm. did you have a, a story about Phantom that you wanted to tell us or... Oh, did I well, uh, no, just that um, my my friend Paul Roberts called me at work. I, at that time, I was editor of a magazine called The Best Report, which was about the best of everything. So I couldn't wait to get to work every day because uh, there would be letters saying, come to France, land of love and laughter, and uh, we'd love to send you the newest VCR and all that kind of stuff. So it was all the best of everything. So um, he called me and he said, I just got, he hates when I tell this story, I just got back from London and Phantom of the Opera is the greatest thing i've ever seen <laughs> so anyway uh, i immediately put down the the prong on the phone picked it up and started looking for press trips to london um so that i could see the show and the only way i could get was one that would be um in scotland but there would be one night beginning in london and the final night would be ending in london so i got to london early on a saturday morning and went to um, Her Majesty's Theatre, soon to be His Majesty's Theatre, and saw the second longest line I've ever seen in my life waiting for theatre tickets. The first belongs to Mr. President back (laughs) in Boston on July 17th, 1962, when indeed, um, if you know Boston, it's extended from the Colonial Theatre all the way around uh, down Boylston Street and down Tremont Street uh, to where the Saxon Theatre was um, at that point in time. That's what it was called. It's still there. It's now an Emerson Theatre. But it was an incredibly long line. And I am telling you that I said to myself, well, what's the use? And by the way, this was 10 o'clock in the morning. I mean, on a Monday, 
when indeed people go to work. And yet people were so anxious to see the new Irving Berlin musical that this is what the line was like. If I had done the math and said, well, you know, oh, um, they're going to be here four weeks, eight performances a week. There's 1,600 seats in the theater, you know, I'll be able to get in. But I didn't, so I left. So as a result, I vowed I would never do that again. So when I got to Phantom and saw the longest line aside from Mr. President, I got in line. And for a good hour, I practiced being like the boy in Oliver, Oliver, you know, <laughs> please, sir, do you have one ticket? You know, doing all sorts of expressions on my face, hoping for the best, you know, please, sir, please. Yeah. And when I got to the box office, I did my best, please, sir. And suddenly I was handed a, an orchestra seat in row N. I don't know how the hell it happened, but it did happen. I was so excited. However, I was exhausted. But on the other hand, I had just got my first CD player and I was, I wanted to run around London to, they had record stores then, to get uh, recordings of such British musicals as Passion Flower Hotel and Blitz. None of that happened. I went from store to store to store and they just had the big hit London musicals and not the obscure ones. So by the time two o'clock ran around, I was exhausted having come off the plane. I didn't want to go back to my hotel and sleep because I'm an old hotel employee and I know that even though desk clerks are very good at making wake-up calls in the morning, they're not good in the afternoon because mm. they're not expecting to do it. I mean, in the morning they say, all right, we know we have to make these calls. And I'm telling you that if I had gone to that hotel and slept and woke up at 5 o'clock uh, after the matinee was over with my ticket for N19, I would have thrown myself in the Thames. So <laughs> uh, so I stayed awake and um, I went in. Now, the problem, too, is by that point I was exhausted. But Phantom is a very dark show. There's very dim lighting. And so, you know, catching four wink seemed like a good idea i was struggling so hard to stay awake amazingly at the end of the first act i ran up the street it was a mcdonald's up the street then it's not there anymore but I, I i wanted to get as much caffeine as i could possibly get to see the second act to really see it and the place was closed a mcdonald closed on a saturday afternoon all dark suddenly a guy came to the door and said we've had an electrical power failure the only thing i could possibly offer you was anything to drink i said fine give me the caffeine you know so i had the biggest um coke that i could possibly get and uh slurped it down and did see more of the second act than i did of the first and I didn't think it was the best thing I ever saw, frankly. Um, though, as I say, I did love those three songs and uh, certainly the pageantry and all that. But uh, I'm not being fair to it because, after all, I, uh, I had a hard time following it. But um, anyway, I've had uh, nine subsequent opportunities to see Phantom of the Opera. And um, um, as Franklin Shepard says of My Fair Lady, I kind of enjoyed it or whatever he says, um, words to that effect. <laughs> sort of. I, yeah, I sort of enjoyed it. Is that what it is? Yeah. Um, I sort of enjoyed it. So that's my phantom story. All right. Uh, Rob Johnson has uh, checked the Tony Awards eligibility rules. Yeah, what have we learned? Uh, something that was previously presented during professionally anytime do or during or after the 1946-47 Broadway season is in substantially the same form or in an eligible Broadway theater that has not had a professional performance in the borough of Manhattan at any time during the three years immediately preceding the eligibility date. So it seems as though you need a three-year buffer to be considered for a revival. Uh, and, and I was thinking when we were talking about that, that had that not been the case, I'm sure David Merrick would have pulled something. 
month, yeah. you know? <laughs> when they uh, danced the dime across uh, 44th Street. You know? <laughs> right, 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 they, right, right. Uh, they, yes, indeed. Merrick but also, pull, as, you know. as you pointed out, James, the, the I think that the best revival, Tony, is generally not considered anywhere near as important as the best indeed. musical. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, exactly. I think the best revival is certainly uh more important to the insiders than it is to the general public you know they mm-hmm. the people presenting revivals would like to have that as a marketing tool so this brings up an in- interesting point because if 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 what um you just read is true and say phantom does open reopen a year from now i guess it wouldn't be eligible for anything well, it wouldn't no, be eligible think, for a musical or a revival. No, I, I think performances would be eligible. Yeah, performances mm-hmm. I would be eligible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, depending if, if there's a completely new scenic design, that would be eligible too. But um, And also, what would, they, what would they call it? You know, I mean, how will they refer to it if it's, uh, it's, a, if it's a very different production, but it's not – I mean, I guess they could still call it a revival even though it's – I don't, I don't think they'll worry about the label. I think tourists will come to town and not even know that it had closed and it was still running. So yeah. I think that's yeah. possible too. Yeah, maybe. So, anyway. Yeah. It's a, we, I'm sure we will discuss it, not if it happens, but when it happens. Right. <laughs> it, it seems that they're leaving too much money on the table. And, 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 this, and at the end of the day, this is really more business than it is art. Uh, and, no. and they're not going to... Uh, Mm-hmm. Did show business, it's not show art. No, it's sure uh, <laughs> But I got to tell you, I got to tell you, um, uh, as, as much as I've enjoyed talking about Phantom today, I've got to hear what Michael thought of Camelot because I know he's never <laughs> liked the show. And I'm wondering if indeed he likes this version better, thinks it's no better, hates them both. Um, so, uh, James, can we please move on to that? Because <laughs> my curiosity is really a fever pitch. Well, I am uh, afraid to move on to this. That's why I've been, I've been uh, <laughs> vamping, vamping on, <laughs> vamping on Phantom of the Opera because Peter and Michael got over to Lincoln Center Theater <laughs> to see the revival of, uh, shall we say, Aaron Sorkin's Camelot. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yes, and, and I'm terrified to hear what is going to happen next, but I will open the floor to Michael Portantier. Michael, tell us what you thought about Camelot, if ever I would leave you. <laughs> well, first of all, Peter and I were at the same performance, so we can't right. say, yeah, oh, well, yeah. you didn't see the same show that I did. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, generally speaking, I would say that uh, at the end of the first act, although I had many... Uh, many quibbles uh, or more than quibbles i i was still with it and then i felt that it completely fell apart in act two um so for whatever that's worth uh i i was surprised uh, Michael, can yeah. you tell me uh what you mean by fall apart well just the the revisions the uh the, oh, the revisions. so it was the okay and all, all right. but not just the book revisions the uh the direction um there is something that happens in the last 10 minutes of the show that is so horrendous um, that it, I would say it, it pretty much destroys everything that has come before. Uh, and when you see the show, you, you'll understand why I, I 
can't really say any more about that. Uh, but uh, that was tremendously disappointing. Uh, I was surprised um, that the there was so much cut from the show musically. Uh, and really, I hate to say it, it just it really just just seemed like a an ego trip on the part of Aaron Sorkin, uh, which has been aided and abetted by Bartlett Share. Uh, um, and apparently now that I guess they consider themselves quite a team because of the great success of To Kill their version of To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, which was a great success, even though I personally uh, very passionately dislike it. Um, so. Uh, that was, yeah, I mean, the overture started and uh, God, it sounded so gorgeous. Uh, I was sitting on the third row in the center and I felt like, um, I had the greatest stereo system ever Mm. (laughs) created right in front of me because they were, the orchestra was like right in front of me. And Kim Rigsby was about 15 feet away from me, uh, conducting it. And it just sounded so beautiful. But then the cuts started, um, in the overture. And I thought, oh, well, all right. You know, um, uh, nowadays overtures are, are not as in fashion as they used to be. So, but I didn't necessarily think that it, you know, was a foreboding of what was to come. But then the c- cuts continued, um, uh, one half of the verse of uh, Simple Joys of Maidenhood, uh, all of the song Follow Me, uh, which is one of the most beautiful songs in the score, was gone along with the character who originally sang it, Nimue, and she was cut partly because uh, apparently, for whatever reasons, uh, Sorkin was determined to remove all the magic from Camelot, and Nimue was... Uh, Oh, originally a, like a sprite or a fairy of some sort. So she's not in it to lure Merlin away. Um, uh, the, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> How to Handle a Woman is a great song. And I think it was completely undercut by the decision to cut the entire introductory section. You swore that you had taught me everything from A to Z with nary and omission in between, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, Andrew Burnap as Arthur only sang the song proper, the lyrical section of it. And without the setup, it was nowhere near as effective without that huge emotional transition. So that was awful. Um, the jousts uh, number was cut. And thank God, that was one of the best things about this production that uh, originally, as originally written, the jousts take place off stage because they weren't going to have horses and men on horseback with lances fighting on on the stage of the was it the was it the majestic yeah yeah uh so um they had the audience uh, the they had the chorus just looking out at all of this happening uh and then um lancelot kills uh lionel and the, the body is brought on and all of that happens uh but uh, here was a place with a sword fight, and I thought that was a very, very smart idea, except that then Arthur jumps in at the end uh, rather than Lionel, uh, and he uh, he f- has a sword fight with Lancelot. And even though they explained it, I still c- couldn't understand the – completely understand the justification. He says something about he didn't want um, uh, Lance to humiliate all of the knights. but. I, I don't know. It, it just seemed very, very weird. Uh, other musical cuts 
the final section of what do the simple folk do, which is basically the whole point of the song. <laughs> I mean, they sing this charming song, Guinevere and Arthur, about uh, what do the simple folk do? Uh, you know, when the, when they're upset and they well they think well they 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 whistle, uh, they sing, they dance, and then they finally decide. Well, you know, they probably just wonder what royal folk would do. Well, that was cut. Uh, so that was ridiculous. Uh, and then uh, some of the Guinevere song was cut. Uh, Fie on goodness. Uh, I think all of it was there, but it was broken up with little snippets of book scenes. So um, all of this in, you know, just to get more book by Aaron Sorkin. And so I, I, I personally think that that was an ego trip on his part. And I don't like most of the rewrites. Um, the worst rewrite of all, perhaps, is that of the Morgan Le Fay scene. She is no longer a, a supernatural being. She is a scientist <laughs> and uh, really seemed no reason for her to be there except to, as an excuse to get Arthur away from the court and get him away so that uh, Lancelot and Guinevere could be found together. Um, casting. I thought um, Andrew Burnap was too young looking. Uh, now, Arthur is supposed to be very young at the beginning of the story, but I've always had a problem with that, too, because I, I don't understand how Mordred, um, you know, mm. fits in. Uh, mm. And I don't think that was explained sufficiently in the original, and it's certainly not explained well here either, as far as I could tell. Um, so I thought he was very good but too young looking and it bothered me that he had no attempt at a british accent whatsoever uh philip asu whom i i loved in hamilton and other things including guys and dolls as sarah brown uh, which i saw her do in dc i thought she was completely charmless as guinevere uh, i think that was partly because of the writing again trying to make her a stronger woman giving her more agency uh you know but if you throw out the charm which i'm sure julie andrews had in abundance uh then the audience just doesn't like the character and uh that is obviously a problem i also thought she had zero chemistry with jordan donica as lancelot um no romantic or sexual chemistry whatsoever and obviously that uh, is going to hurt <laughs> the plot. Um, so what else? There were some good ideas. Uh, I, uh, they had this idea that the knights are very conservative and kind of um, resisting Arthur's attempts to, uh, you know, to uh, to change things around and 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 have a more democratic society and and achieve peace rather than war. Uh, I thought that was. Um, a good idea, but it, but the way that it was written was not done very well. Um, I thought it was a good idea to have Guinevere sing Simple Joys of Maidenhood to Arthur. Uh, he was on stage for that number. And so that prevented you having two musical soliloquies in a row. Uh, right after I wonder what the king is doing tonight. Uh, I thought it it really helped for her to have someone to relate to during that number. Um, and uh i love i i personally had no problem with the physical production i thought the designs were very nice uh, i i they were certainly more spare than the originals based on uh photos but i i thought that worked well uh for the show and they were certainly very handsome even though 
uh, they weren't very elaborate. Um, there's wonderful effect of the cast of members making entrances from way, way, way upstage uh, at the Beaumont. It seems like they, you know, they're starting on um, Amsterdam Avenue or whatever street that is, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and they come up steps and they suddenly appear and they walk all the way downstage. And that looked beautiful. That said, I also felt the show was a little underpopulated in terms of the size of the chorus. Um, and for a spectacle like this, I, I thought that was a, that was a negative. Um, so that, that's my overall reaction. I, I didn't, uh, I did not mind act one so much, but after act two, I was really dispirited and it just makes me upset that, um, uh, uh, although I, I think the original is extremely flawed. I do not think this version is an improvement in terms of the book. Uh, so uh, in that sense, I think it was a tremendous waste of time. So uh, is it a dead heat? Uh, you um, you dislike them both as much as each one as the other? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think... We'll give you a week to think about that. Yeah, uh, about I, I think this book is worse. Um, okay, but All also right. it's hard to say because I think the musical cuts were so damaging. Uh-huh. So you can't really necessarily blame that completely on Sorkin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, Peter, did you have similar feelings? No, um, I thought it was quite good, and I know that I'm in a vast minority here. Uh, one of the things I think was the intention here was not unlike 1770s. Six, Sorkin was interested in making these people more human. wasn't as interested in kings and queens and knights as much as he was in making these people human. There are a lot of jokey type moments in the show. Some might feel that there are too many, but uh, they have very human responses, and I like that quite a bit. Uh, also, I dare say, and you know, Aaron Sorkin might say, "Boy, are you reading into this? Aren't you crazy?" But I think some of this show has to do with white supremacy because the Knights, as um, Michael mentioned, are against Arthur's intention to make England more democratic. It's very interesting that uh, Pelinor even says to him, you know, you're essentially giving up a lot of your powers as king by wanting to have this democracy. This isn't the line, the, the concept. But, you know, why are you giving up so much power? Why? Because he's a good guy. He wants everybody to be equal. And that really drives the Knights crazy that they see these peasants um, being invited to picnics and things like that, where they really felt that they shouldn't be there. So there's a real snobbery going on there. That's even pernicious. So I thought that was something I, uh, uh, the Knights are very conservative. As Michael said at the beginning, they're really upset that Guinevere is not following tradition by coming. Mm. Tradition is mentioned a lot um, coming up the hill uh, to meet Arthur that she, she, her carriage is down below and all that. Um, the fact that the carriage is down below and not where it's supposed to be up on the hill really upsets the knights because these guys are really mired in tradition. And so as a result, we establish early on that they are going to be resistant to any change whatsoever. And boy, have I learned through my long life that what people really fear most in life is change. Mm -hmm. So as a result, um, I bought that tremendously. Um, Arthur is very concerned. Um, he's, it's an arranged marriage and that's, going to play a big part in this show, an arranged marriage. Um, why didn't you teach me how to love? He says to um, Merlin's not there, but he's um, speaking about him. 
Um, there's a lot of issues about might being right, might, might be right. Uh, it might not be right, but there's a lot of talk about using um, force for good, not evil, to prevent. Force is a preventive measure, not as a warring measure. So I thought that was good. He says, um, I want honor. I want a thirst for justice. I want decency. Um, all those things are wonderful ideals. And he really comes across as meaning it. So um, in terms of his being too young, well, he does establish that um, – Arthur had an affair with Morgan Le Fay when he was 15 years old, mm. 15. And Mordred now is said to be, I think, 16. So that's 31. And uh, of course, let's give a year for the pregnancy. So that's 32. But I don't, th- I don't think Andrew Brennap is um, much younger or older than 32. I haven't checked, but I can't imagine that he is. Um, so here we have the queen coming in, and um, it's very interesting that she sings the lusty month of May, which indicates that she's more of a free spirit than you might think. This has always been there, of course, um, where everyone goes blissfully astray. She will go astray, but she won't go blissfully astray. <laughs> and I think that's one of the strongest things in this show. What's really something is the second act begins with a projection. And this is not in the original. I checked. One year later. So even though Guinevere and Lancelot want to be with each other, they are holding off. They are trying as hard as they can to be good. A year later and nothing has happened. I mean, I really have to admire that, that um, until the raging tide we held inside would hold no more. Um, now. Now sung by Lancelot, and it, uh, I think it fits better in his mouth. Um, I'm talking character now, not voice. But anyway. And it's worth pointing out that uh, I believe this is correct. In the original version, they never consummate their relationship. Uh, that was added for the f- the film. And now I think it's been added for every revival of Camelot that I've seen. But I'm pretty sure that in the original, we are supposed to think that Lancelot and Guinevere never sleep together. Wow. I didn't realize that, I have to admit. Um, so um, the information comes at the right time. Pelinor spills the beans. Uh, this is when Guinevere learns that Arthur has a history with another woman. Um, and it's so wonderful that when Mordred comes in, essentially says, but he doesn't use this language, but you know, I'm going to blackmail you. You're going to do what I say, or else um, you're going to, um, or else I'm going to tell everybody you had this illegitimate child by uh, my mother, and I'm going to do that unless you give me what I want. And he immediately calls in a page and says, um, "Let the kingdom know that I once had an illegitimate child by a woman." <laughs> Again, he wants to do the right thing, um, and what's wonderful is that he says, "I have tried for so long to get you and your mother to come to the castle and live with uh, me. I have tried that so many times. In fact, the one thing that I think is ridiculous in this book is this established that he's been writing a letter every week <laughs> for four years. It, the The term 208 letters is even mentioned more than once. Well, you know, Cole House came to mother and father's house looking for Sarah every Sunday for a while, but I don't think he would have done it for four years every Sunday. I think he would have given up. And I, I don't believe that Arthur would really write letter after letter after. I think he would write letters at the beginning, but when he saw that none were answered, that he would give up that cause. But he does, Mordred does give him a letter from his mother eventually. 
And uh, he immediately, immediately says, I'm going to go see her. Um, I'll be, uh, I'm not coming back tonight. I'm going to go see her. And this is what sets Guinevere off. The fact that he's going to see an old flame. Mordred even mentions you never get over your first love. That's the special love. And that's true. Um, so that's what really drives her into Lancelot's arms. And I think that's something that happens to couples. That if one um, starts showing an interest in someone else, that the other one who's been thinking about doing something can very well do something at that moment in time. So I thought that was very, very smart and very skillful. As it turns out, she didn't write him a letter. Mordred is, um, Mordred wrote the letter. And indeed, he was causing trouble. He knew that the, and he was ready as soon as those people went to bed. I'm telling you, he was outside ready to say you've committed treason. And I thought that was very, very smart. Um, so I liked that quite a bit. I, I also thought the sword fight was a, a especially smart idea. And I may be wrong about this, but, um, as history proves, Camelot was not nominated as best musical in, in the 1960-61 season. All right, not every musical be, can be nominated, but that year they nominated three. As we all know, they traditionally nominate four, <laughs> but that year there were three. So it wasn't just a case that they was, you know, if there were four nominees and Camelot wasn't nominated, you could say, we missed by a vote. You can convince yourself of that. But when they nominate three and they don't nominate you, uh, they don't like you. You know, that much is clear. And I've always felt that one of the things that hurt Camelot was that scene when the jousts were happening. Is it jousts or juice? I've never learned. Jousts. Anyway, is it jousts? Okay, good. I think so. <laughs> um, yeah. As they say, in uh, when you take the SATs, your first uh, response is usually the right one. So, so um, <laughs> I guess that happened here with me. Anyway, so um, they all went fort wall and they're looking out. And I think that really brought my fair lady to mind because of course mm. at the ascot um races that's what they do they're watching the races and you don't see the horses of course um anymore than you see the horses in camelot but i have a feeling that struck people as very derivative oh they're doing that again and i think that was really injurious so the sword fight makes more sense on a number of levels in terms of um, Arthur saying, I'll take over now. I thought that was something he really wanted to do because he really did want to spare the um, Night of Humiliation. There's much dialogue before that when he's talking to Guinevere and saying, Guinevere, please don't do this. Do not, do not be on uh, against Lancelot. Um, it's, it's not right. You're going to make, because I know Lancelot's going to win. He doesn't say that, but he means that. I know Lancelot is going to win and it's going to be terrible for our knights to really be humiliated like that. And she wants... Um, Lancelot humiliated. She's convinced that at least one of these three guys is going to be able to do it. By the way, Then You May Take Me to the Fair is in this production. I love that song. <laughs> I think it's a very witty song. Um, and it was dropped uh, during the original run of Camelot when the show was considered too long, along with Fire on Goodness. So I still remember knowing the album of Camelot before I saw that production in uh, the summer of 62. Burton and Andrews were long gone. Goulet was still there. But opening the, the list of the songs, oh, my God, they made a mistake. There's no, th then you may take me to the fair. There's no fire and goodness. Yeah, they had got it. I was shocked, you know. But anyway, it's back, and I'm glad it's back. But anyway, um, that's why Arthur takes over. Now, again, as, as Michael mentioned, Sorkin was intent on eliminating the magic, which I think is a good idea because he replaced it with humanity. That He made these people human. That's where he spent his energies rather than the magic. So what happens here is not 
that Lancelot brings a knight back from the dead. It seems to be artificial respiration that he does that gets out there to come back. But two of the ladies in waiting say, oh, my God, he was dead. Oh, my God, she brought, he brought him back to life. And you can tell that legends like that spread, that people want to believe that type of thing. Well, that isn't what happens. So, again, there's no magic here, but <laughs> there's a strange type. I'm putting this word in quotation mark, magic, in that people start thinking along those lines, and they um, they convince themselves they believe it. Um, what a shame. This has nothing to do with Aaron Sorkin, but what a shame that the end of Act One where there's this long and glorious speech was not musicalized. The show's a musical. Let's hear a a great soliloquy here uh, uh, along the lines of the soliloquy in Carousel with that much power. Because when you come right down to it, who is Arthur talking to if he's just talking? We accept in um, a musical that somebody singing is essentially, when he's alone on stage, is giving internal thoughts but speaking on stage is bizarre but that should have been a really magnificent song and i'm sorry that they never did that a lot of people tell me the reason they did that is because burton had such a marvelous speaking voice they wanted to showcase it and that's probably uh what's going on but nevertheless um so um i think the scene between um Arthur and Morgan Le Fay, unlike Michael, I thought it was terrific. Um, I thought it really crackled uh, because she is not in a forgiving mood. Um, she's still holding a grudge about it, uh, essentially saying, you know, I could have been queen. And she also says, um, I, I won't be queen, but I will be the mother of one. She wants Mordred to take over, and he's not having that. Because by this point in time, even though when he sees Mordred again, he gives him the benefit of the doubt. He says, I'm going to put you in a training program. You're going to be a knight. I'm not going to show favoritism, but I'm going to do everything I can to see you succeed. He really wants to do the right thing. This is a good guy. You know, so I thought that was really, really quite terrific um, to see that happen. I've heard people complain about the fact that there's no round table. There's a scene when there is a table and it's not round. Is every table in the castle round? They happen to be in a room where there's a a table that isn't round. I don't think that's a flaw at all. But I heard that a lot as time was going on. I didn't like very much that during Fion Goodness, one um, night held a note an inordinately long Uh, period of time so that everybody could go, woo! Um, So that bothered me tremendously. But um, that I I have to uh, attribute to both the actor and Bartlett Chair for saying, yeah, yeah, keep that in or whatever happened first so so that bothered me tremendously but um but i really um do believe that this is in in a strange way a musical for our times because we're hearing a lot about people being nihilistic about um people who really want um equity and nice things to happen to people who are underprivileged and those who really don't want them to have it at all. Um, Mordred represents the evil that we have continually experienced um, in our society today. So I thought that was quite good. A lot of people complained to me um, in advance that they felt that um, Michael mentioned no chemistry between um, uh, Lancelot and um, Guinevere, but a lot of people um, that I had heard who called me up and uh, complained about this Camelot in advance said to me that um, they felt that the love between um, Lan- I'm sorry, Guinevere and Arthur 
the love between them wasn't there at all. And that bothered them a great deal. Well, one could effectively argue it is an arranged marriage. And I do believe that um, in many an arranged marriage, that it could be that they don't fall in love. Indeed, Tevya and um, <laughs> Golda do say uh, after 25 years, it's nice to know that they do love each other. Yes, that can happen too, but I do believe that there have to be arranged marriages where the people don't fall in love. They do talk about this at the end of the show, and I think that's one of the things that Michael is objecting to. Um, in a way, it does seem a little clunky, but I can also understand under the circumstances why indeed each of them would fess up that they had more affection for each other than they um, had suspected. In fact, so did Tevye and Golda when you come right down to it. So um, so I, I'm not saying... Unlike Michael, I always liked Camelot. I always thought the book of Camelot worked well. I know I'm in the minority there, and I'm very glad that Ethan Morden, in his book on 60s Broadway musicals, Open a New Window, devotes a whole chapter to how good Camelot is, and I agree with him. Um, so to me, it's not a case of which is better of these two, even though I asked Michael that question. <laughs> to me, this is an alternate version of Camelot, which I think is quite successful, as well as I think the other version is quite successful, too. So you can have your Camelot with magic, you can have it without magic, and I think they're both tremendous experiences, especially because um, the score is so magnificent. I do believe that the original cast album of Camelot is the most elegant of them all, um, and I really um, never tire of playing it. And um, yes, I think these people are doing a good job. Um, <laughs> I think Philippa Sue is doing a fine job. I also think that uh, Jordan Donica... Um, I always judge Lancelot by Goulet's lyric in If Ever um, I Would Leave You, uh, when fall nips the air, the way he crisply says the word nips, you can actually hear the nipping, you know, and nobody um, I've ever seen as Lancelot has ever done that nearly as well. So, um, but uh, but he, he, they're all very good. I don't think that they, they can possibly erase the memories of the original if you listen to the cast album, but they're all very good. But I think this Camelot is well worth visiting um, if one goes in with a mind saying, okay, it's not going to be what it was, but can it be successful on its own terms? And for that matter, that's what I liked about To Kill a Mockingbird too. And again, Michael and I disagree about that, but um, that he really, it's an alternate version. And um, I think it's a very fine one. Okay, so that is Camelot at the Vivian Beaumont, uh, Lincoln Center Theater. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. In the show notes, I also have a video of Jordan Donica singing If Ever I Would Leave You at a rehearsal. Uh, so if you want to check that out, it's there in the show notes as well. So next up... Uh, Peter and Michael got over to the American Airlines Theater to see Fat Ham, the transfer from the public theater downtown. So what do we think about this uh, new telling of a classic story? Peter, why don't you start? Um, I, I'm reasonably mystified why Fat Ham uh, won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, I think it's a very slight work. It doesn't do very much for me at all. Um, I do think the cast works extraordinarily hard and does very, very well. There are some marvelous um, parallels. Um, yes, it is Hamlet. And um, yes, indeed, um, the, the gentleman in, in question is very concerned um, that his mother married so quickly after his father mysteriously died. And we do have a ghost shows up as well. The one thing I did like 
is the um, parallel to the scene with the player king. Um, when Hamlet uh, commissions them to do a play, the murder of Gungatago, to um, mirror what actually happened in the kingdom, to see if they'll uh, be guilt, is show their guilt. Gertrude and Claudius will show their guilt. And um, here it's uh, done with charades, which I thought was a very clever idea, because it's a party. It's a back, uh, I should make clear, it's a backyard barbecue party that they're having because it's a wedding ceremony. So you have a lot of colorful characters who come in and all that goes with that. And, um, you know, it's 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 fun. I think it goes on a little long, even though uh, it doesn't have an intermission. But um, it's a joke that wears thin for me. Um, but throughout um, the rest of my life, I will always be um, very very surprised that this um, was deemed Pulitzer worthy. Because um, when you come right down to it, it's a commercial comedy, and usually um, they don't get Pulitzer prizes. So. Um, but good luck to it. You know, the audience seemed to have a nice time. And certainly the cast is up to what's going on here. And um, it's mostly the original uh, cast from the public theater from um, a season or two ago, whenever it was. Um, it's funny that the setting of the show is established as a house in North Carolina. Could also be Virginia or Maryland or Tennessee. It is not Mississippi or Alabama or Florida. That's a different thing altogether. And then for time, the American South to me exists in a kind of liminal space between the past and the present with an aspirational relationship to the future that is contingent to your history living in the South. All that to say, I'm writing this play from inside the second decade of the 21st century. This world aesthetically sits anywhere in the four to six decades preceding the current moment. Um, okay, um, I guess, but um, I didn't get much of that while watching the play, and I won't be surprised if other people didn't do too. So, um, I'm done. Michael. Okay, <laughs> Michael, how about you? Well, I'm late to the party because I uh, this is the first time I've seen the play. Uh, I would I would say I agree with basically everything that Peter said. Um, I do like those notes in the playbill <laughs> about the setting and the time by the playwright. James, how is it pronounced? I, James Iams. 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 Yes. Oh, is that right? Himes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's spelled. His last name is spelled I J A M E S. Yeah. Um, I responded to the play very, very well on a on a co- level of, of a comedy, as you said. But I too am mystified as to why it won the Pulitzer because I I think uh, I mean there have been comedies that have won Pulitzers. But usually they're much more pointed comedies than this one mm-hmm. uh, or satires like How to Succeed in Business Without Really mm-hmm. Trying. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, uh, it does follow Hamlet, uh, the broad outlines of the plot for, for, for the most part. But then it, uh, to me, it goes completely in another direction. <laughs> um, for one thing, there's uh, all this gay content here. And, uh, you know, I, I think we all agree that, that some of um, Shakespeare's plays do have some gay content uh for example merchant of venice and some people argue even romeo and juliet um but i don't think there's any in hamlet unless i missed it for all these Mm. hundreds of years Mm. um and i don't object to it but it just doesn't have anything to do with hamlet and then also um the ending of this uh um has is very 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 different from hamlet what we have here ironically is um there's sort of a deus ex machina 
in this play, which ironically is is a, a throwback, isn't it? It's a throwback mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. Shakespeare mm-hmm. <laughs> to mm-hmm. you know the the Greeks and mm-hmm. and, and the Romans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was uh, very unexpected. I, I think you will you may like it very very much if you just go in expecting a comedy and not. Uh, for there to be strong parallels to Hamlet. The cast is superb, uh, beginning with Marcel Spears in the Hamlet role, whose uh, his, his name, well, his name is actually, the character's name is Juicy. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure where that came from, but mm-hmm. he is just great. He does all these little um, nonverbal asides to the audience with like rolling his eyes and making facial expressions and and the audience responds tremendously to all that it's mm-hmm. really really great uh the rest of the cast nikki crawford chris herbie holland billy eugene jones adriana mitchell calvin leon smith and benji k thomas um really fantastic uh and uh, oh yeah, I I too thought that the replacement of the uh, play within a play with the game of charades, I thought that was really great. Um, there is some actual Hamlet in it, a few excerpts, uh, including "What a Piece of Work Is Man," mm-hmm. uh, which of course we also uh, yeah. heard in Hair, <laughs> Hair. as a yeah. song, yeah. Um, uh, and also the lines Hamlet's lines setting up the play within a play. Uh, but then, as I said, there are many many places where this this take off this uh gloss this uh uh parody whatever you want to call it has nothing nothing to do with hamlet including the entire final section so um i think as i said you may enjoy it a lot if you see it uh with that expectation okay so that is uh fat ham playing at the american airlines theater it's uh i was looking for it i it, it's produced by a consortium of lots of people including the public theater where it started uh and i was unclear if also roundabout was involved in the production or if it's just a rental mm-hmm. but it was unclear it's, from the press releases it says in association with roundabout theater company which may mean nothing at all uh, it could very well be that the words, that words, all these words. Yeah, it really, um, it's it's not been a, a a plentiful season for Roundabout. Needless to say, mm-hmm. uh, we haven't had the usual um, number of productions that we usually get from them. Times is hard. Times is hard. <laughs> so we go from Fat Ham on Broadway. To uh, second stage is Tony Kaiser Theater, where White Girl in Danger, a new musical, is playing off-Broadway by a Michael R. Jackson, who uh, we heard from last season, and he did quite well. So, Peter, tell, tell us about White Girl in Danger. So, uh, it's, it's about um, the world of soap operas, and indeed... Um, we're dealing with uh, an all-white soap opera, and the black people in it are in the black ground. I don't know if Michael R. Jackson invented this term, but I think it's a very clever one, the black ground. Um, and we do have one person who has decided that she doesn't want to be in the black ground, that she really believes that she can be part of the action for real. And that's what she wants to be. And those are going to be her struggles during the first act. And um, <laughs> as, as is often the case with contemporary musicals today, Lord knows, 
you're going to see lockers, high school lockers, because there are going to be scenes involving um, scenes in high school where she tries to ingratiate herself with three different women, uh, three uh, classmates, and hoping that um, they will accept her. They work very hard at not accepting her. Now, this sounds like it's very dour, but actually it is a situation where it's very funny, very pointedly funny. What we also have is something not unlike what happened in the Tony-winning musical that nobody remembers, Hallelujah Baby, because the young black woman here has a mother who's essentially saying, no, it can't be done. Give it up. Stop. It's not going to happen. They're not going to let you do it. Um, and um, her, her character name, actually, her, is, uh, which is really quite funny, is Nell Carter. Gibbs. And she does have a, uh, um, uh, the actress playing her, Tara Connor Jones, does have um, a similar um, appearance and voice to Nell Carter's. And of course, you know, in a musical like this, you're going to get um, a big number from a tear down the house number from this uh, character. And of course, that does happen. But anyway, um, so I thought the satire was really pointed and very, very smart during the entire first act. Now, here's what's interesting. When I got to the theater and the usher gave me the program, I heard something I have never heard from an usher before. And that was, you know, the first act is 90 minutes, right? They're actually warning you that you're going to be there for a long time before there's an intermission. And in an era where 90 minutes usually means you're going home, um, now you're going into the lobby for intermission or staying in your seat. But I've never heard ushers warn you that the first act is going to be long. I mean, Camelot is at least 90 minutes, and nobody said anything to me when I got my program at the Vivian Beaumont. But um, so it's long. And unfortunately, the second act um, does get muddled. And I did feel bad that um, the satire lost its sting, and I did become uh, bored with it, I'm sorry to say. But... Um, I have to say that Latoya Edwards um, really did a phenomenal job as Keisha uh, and phenomenal job. And I hope she's remembered by all these committees at um, awards time because it's, it's a very powerful performance of this outsider who wants to get in. And uh, I talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that I don't like the term earworm because of the <laughs> term worm, which is an unpleasant one. But um, you will have some ear chocolate, as I prefer to say, in the actual title song, uh, White Girl in Danger. Um, I think the songs have great melodies, and I really enjoyed hearing them. And should there be a cast album, I would very much be interested in hearing it uh, more than once. So, um, yeah, less is more. And unfortunately, uh, he gave us more rather than less. And um, I wish he'd quit while he was ahead. So White Girl in, White Girl in Danger has been kicking around for a number of years. Uh, did uh, some presentations at the Musical Theater Factory a number of years ago. So we'll see if this continues on a trajectory like uh, Strange Loop does. And Well, you know, I mean, there's, it's always so hard after you have a, a second success, show, yeah. you know, because producers come and say, what else you got? And yeah. you say, well, I have this other show, you know, and, and the producers are inclined to like it because you just did a show that won a Pulitzer Prize. So they, yeah, yeah, this is good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I, it's happened so many times. I once uh, did a study of uh, long running plays 
um, and the next show that those playwrights did. And I think it came out to be that the long-running plays had an average of something like 583 performances, while the second play that they did right after that was something like 119 performances. So it, it is very hard. It is. So, um, um, but I didn't know that, James. I didn't know that this was an old show that's been dusted off. Um, I thought this was something he had written in, uh, since Strange Loop. But it makes more sense when you think of it since it got up so quickly that it was something that was already uh, ready to go, or ostensibly ready to go anyway. Okay, next up, uh, Peter, you uh, got over to the AMT Theater uh, to see Walking with Bubbles, a new musical. So tell us about this. Speaking of people who should be remembered at awards time, uh, Jessica Handy should be. She is working so hard and driven and committed to this material that she wrote. Um, it, the, the credits has created, written, and performed by Jessica Handy, and she is marvelous. The music and lyrics are by Brianna Kothari Barnes. And I'm sorry to say that um, you're not going to find many rhymes that are correct in this. I, I know that I mention rhymes as much as Michael mentions Marilyn May, but nevertheless, <laughs> um, the fact remains that um, uh, the the rhyming is very sloppy in the show, which is a problem. But the music is quite genial and quite nice. It's a very, very potent story. Uh, it's about a woman who marries the wrong guy. And uh, really suffers for it. It's autobiographical. Jessica Hendy was here in New York uh, many moons ago. She was in Cats. Uh, she was she was making a living. Her husband um, was a writer. She never tells us if he's successful, semi-successful, uh, uh, does reasonably well. But anyway, at one point, he says to her, I don't want to live in New York anymore. We have to move to St. Thomas. And in a whither thou goest spirit, she gives up. Um, her career and goes to be with him and uh, she's not too happy down there and frankly neither is he because you know if you're an unhappy person you're going to be unhappy everywhere and if you're a happy person you can be happy no matter what the circumstances you'll find something to like where you're living so so jessica um eventually wins her way back to ohio where she's from originally and at least she's working she's getting acting jobs and all that okay what happens to the husband I think it's a big miscalculation that she tells us what happened to the husband in the first moments of the show. And then she goes into a flashback telling what I just said before. When she tells us what happens to the husband at the beginning, I know that I did, and I have a feeling the audience did too, say, wait a minute, wait a minute, did I just hear that right? And I think she actually has a line that says something like, yeah, you heard that right. However, I am telling you, if she had moved that, if she had told the story linearly and she had got to that point later in the show, that audience would have gasped in horror. And it really is a missed opportunity not to have that happen. So I am hoping that um, she will go back and put that scene where it belongs in the linear scope thing. I'm, I'm very much not a fan of flashbacks to begin with with um but i think it's very injurious here that said this is quite a potent evening and on its own terms extraordinarily successful with a performance that must be seen for a woman who obviously um was doing well back in the era of cats which suddenly is a long time ago 
Um, she hasn't lost a step as a performer. No, no, no. She's still expert, terrific, engaging, riveting even. So, um, oh, uh, <laughs> the title, Walking with Bubbles. That's her kid. His real name is uh, Beckett, but she calls him Bubbles. I wouldn't be surprised if um, in the future um, the kid comes to resent that tremendously. But nevertheless, especially if she calls him that when his friends are around and he's in high school. But uh, anyway, at the point in the show that uh, we're talking about, he's seven years old. And uh, there's some harrowing moments dealing with um, um, with bubbles and uh, very sad ones and very poignant ones and understandable ones as well. So it's a very, very um, arresting one person musical very arresting but boy if she put that information in later whoa what you'd hear from that 99 seat house would sound like a thousand seat house so how about changing it jessica think about it so i see jessica is uh from ccm right did you know oh yeah, yeah. Ken. I, it was uh, before my time i didn't know her there um uh she she was graduated a couple of years before I started there. So, um, and in fact, the head of the drama department for all those years, uh, Richard Hess, directed her. And Brianna was a CCMer too. Um, again, I didn't know any of these people. Uh, so, um, but uh, I'm very happy to see that they've been able to get this on. And I do believe it's going to impress a lot of people. Okay. So that is uh, Walking with Beckett at the AMT Theater. And walking it's, with uh, Bubbles. Walking excuse with bubbles. me. <laughs> walking with Bubbles right. at the AMT Theater. It's playing through June 18th. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And there's a little video to go with that as well. So you can check that out. All right. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to our musical moment and trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to talk to us, uh, to get us. Uh, you can listen to us uh, in Patreon, patreon.com slash Broadway Radio, and you can also support us and support all the Broadway Radio shows uh, by subscribing there. You can get us through Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to your finer podcasts, you'll also find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as all the videos that uh, for the shows this, uh, this week. Uh, we have Camelot, we have a fat ham. We have white girl in danger. We have walking with bubbles, uh, and then we also have our two musical moments in there as well. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? I said it was a Lulu. Uh, Gertrude Lawrence famously sang "Someone to Watch Over Me" in OK, but in a Gertrude Lawrence property, many years later, someone else sang the first line of it. The property also starred someone who, more than a decade later, would star in the stage version of a novel that failed. But both the novel and the play would inspire an Oscar-winning film. Who is he? What's the property in which someone to watch over me is sung? Well, uh, one of the reasons this was a toughie is because we associate Gertrude Lawrence with the stage. But in 1950, she did The Glass Menagerie, in which she played Amanda. Tom, played by Arthur Kennedy, comes home drunk one night and hearing the song being played from the nearby Paradise Ballroom sings Someone to Watch Over Me. Not the whole song, no, but the title line. The film also stars Kirk Douglas as the gentleman caller. 
He starred in the 1963 adaptation of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which didn't last long, but the 1975 Oscar-winning movie sure has. Well, if you think that one was a Lulu. Oh, wait, wait, I got to give credit. Paul Whitty was the first to answer, even though he's been setting up his new branch of business. He must have good people working for him to take time out. Paul was followed by Sean Logan, Jack Leshner, Tony Janicki, and Brigadude. So uh, it was a toughie. This one may even be tougher. Okay, here we go. It's a famous musical of yore. It and its two Broadway revivals received cast albums, as well as a soundtrack when the film was finally made. In the original production, an actor who won a Tony sang a song in which he mentioned two fictional characters, both of whom are represented on Broadway right now. In the same song, this actor almost mentioned a famous real person, saying three syllables of the famous person's four-syllable last name. And in a few months, that famous person will be portrayed off-Broadway by a Tony-winning star. What's the musical? What's the song he sang? Who are the three people mentioned in it? Who are the two actors who won Tony's? Fine, on goodness. Yes. Peter huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. But I was, I was watching the movie the other night, and I happened to notice it, so um, that's why. All right. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So I've taken over the uh, responsibilities for the musical moment this week uh, because uh, I wanted to commemorate Phantom. And uh, I picked out two songs from Phantom. The opener this week is uh, Think of Me being sung by uh, the current Broadway uh, cast, uh, Ben Crawford as the Phantom, Emily Kokachu at Christine, and John Riddle as Raul think, singing Think of Me from Phantom. That's in the opener. And the closer is my Sierra Bogus singing Wishing You Were Somehow Here Again from the Riot, Royal Albert Hall 2011 production. It was the 25th anniversary of uh, Phantom of the Opera. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Sometimes it seemed if I just dreamed Somehow you would be here Wishing I could hear a voice again
心。